welcome to Knoxville Chronicles, a podcast series produced by the Knoxville History Project, an educational nonprofit which researches and promotes the history and culture of Knoxville, Tennessee. Professor Iams and the Asylum. Barely a year after the Civil War ended, a newcomer to the city of Knoxville may once have stood in front of his grand building. Given the state it was in, perhaps he wondered what resources he would have to restore it back to its former glory. That man was the new superintendent of the Deaf and Dumb Asylum. One of downtown's oldest buildings, and certainly one of the most impressive, sits at the corner of a busy intersection where Henley Street, Western Avenue, Summit Hill Drive, and Broadway all come together. The distinctive building, adorned with its Greek-style columns, dates back to 1848, when it was built to be a permanent campus for the Tennessee Institute for the Education of the Deaf and Dumb. It opened three years later, in 1851. At that time, it was a notable achievement for Knoxville to host a major state institution, especially since the city had languished somewhat after losing its state capital status in 1818. One of America's first public schools for the deaf, the Institute had originally opened in 1845 to serve its first class of nine students in rented accommodations in East Knoxville. That school became known more commonly as the Deaf and Dumb Asylum, and much later as the Tennessee School for the Deaf. Although these days the term asylum is associated with dismal mental institutions, back then it simply implied a refuge. The Deaf and Dumb Asylum subsequently lent its name to a city street that once connected to Market Square. Wall Avenue, which now runs between Gay Street and Walnut Street, was for a long time known as Asylum Street. For two years during the Civil War, the asylum served as a military hospital for the Confederate Army, and when the Union Army took control of the city in the summer of 1863, it began to treat injured soldiers in Union uniforms. Many Union soldiers who died at the hospital were transported the half-mile journey north along Broadway to be interred at National Cemetery, just behind Old Gray. After the war, the asylum building fell into disrepair, and its grounds, too, were in a state of disarray, its fences and shrubbery all destroyed. Like many other buildings and institutions, the asylum was forced to suspend operations and classes during the war. Afterwards, the city, like many other towns and cities across the South, attempted to pick itself up and reestablish some kind of a return to normalcy. By 1866, the school's trustees were keen and ready not only to reorganize the school, but also to return it to the good reputation it once enjoyed. To help accomplish that goal, they sought a new principal, conducting a national search for a new superintendent. They received help in that regard from Edward Gallaudet, who had worked with Abraham Lincoln himself to establish a national school for the deaf in Washington, D.C. Today, his school is famous as Gallaudet University. The man who Mr. Gallaudet recommended was, in his own words, the finest deaf-mute teacher in the country. That teacher was Professor Joseph Iams. Joseph Henry Harrison Iams was born in Rushville, Ohio on December 11, 1840. 
Although the Iams family had settled for several generations in Maryland, Joseph's parents moved westward to Iowa, where he studied at the State University there and later at Michigan State University in Ann Arbor. Joseph was not the first family member to be involved in teaching deaf and dumb students. At age 19, Joseph had returned to Iowa to become a teacher for the Iowa Institute for the Deaf and Dumb, which had been founded in 1854 by his older brother, the Reverend William E. Iams, first as a private school and then a state school the following year. William had previously taught mute students in Jacksonville, Illinois. As principal of the Iowa school, William taught the most advanced students, while Joseph instructed the second class. The brother's mother, Mary Ann Iams, also served as a matron. Meanwhile, the National Deaf Mute College, later known as Gallaudet University, recruited Joseph to Washington, D.C., where he taught for a time before moving to Knoxville after the war in 1866. When Professor Iams arrived in Knoxville that fall, he found the campus in a dreadful state. In fact, it no longer had any registered students. His first task, along with Stuart E.C. Jones, was to round up pupils, which they did, totaling 15 in order to reopen the school. Despite the enormity of the task, Professor Iams was considered an energetic and caring principal. A brief article in the Knoxville Whig on May 8, 1867, attested to his character during an occasion in his first year in Knoxville. The newspaper read, The inmates of the Deaf and Dumb Asylum enjoyed a rich treat on Friday of last week at the residence of Reverend Mr. Aiken on the Scott Farm near the city in the shape of a picnic. It was one of those pleasant occurrences which all who behold must enjoy. Mr. Iams, who is principal of the asylum, is doing very much for the comfort of those unfortunate who are committed to his care. Nothing in his power to make them happy is left undone. Interestingly, the reverend mentioned was the Reverend William Aiken, a Presbyterian pastor who at one time was involved with Third Presbyterian Church in Knoxville, and later helped establish Aaron Presbyterian Church in Bearden. Professor Iams knew the Reverend Aiken from his past as the father of a girl he once knew during their days growing up in Rushville, Ohio. The Reverend Aiken had been a chaplain of the Voluntary Pennsylvania Regiment during the Civil War. In an unexpected romantic twist, after Professor Iams moved to Knoxville, he discovered that his former friend, Mary Aiken, had moved to Knoxville ahead of him. The two adults rekindled their friendship, which, after a time, blossomed into romance, and then marriage on June 29, 1868. Mary herself would join her husband as a teacher at the asylum. Joseph and Mary had six children, three girls and three boys, though one of the girls died very young. The boys became particularly well-known throughout the city. The eldest, Howard, played first quarterback for one of the first Tennessee Vols football teams in 1892. He became a local physician, but was killed in a streetcar accident on Magnolia Avenue in the early 1920s. Son Edwin worked as the superintendent for the Townsend Lumber Mill and married Mabel Townsend, the daughter of Colonel W.B. Townsend, the Pennsylvania lumber merchant who extensively logged throughout the Smoky Mountains and who, much later, would sell back much of his acreage at a low price to help form the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. 
Indeed, it was Townsend's daughter Mabel who famously asked her father to donate land for a Girl Scout camp to be named after her mother, who had died unexpectedly in 1923. That camp, Camp Margaret Townsend, operated from 1925 to 1959 and, following a vacant spell, became the site for the Great Smoky Mountains Institute at Tremont, still on that spot today. The youngest son, Harry, enjoyed a long career as a commercial illustrator and inspired a sustainable interest in birdwatching and environmental education beginning in the early 1920s. With the help of the city, his former home site and Riverside Bird Sanctuary became a public park named Iams Nature Center in the 1960s. His wife, Alice, was a Girl Scout ambassador and also helped establish Camp Margaret Townsend in the Smokies with her sister-in-law, Mabel. Back at the asylum, Professor Iams, while nurturing his growing family, was involved in other ventures beyond the gates of the asylum, where he lived in a cottage on the grounds especially built for him. During his tenure at the school, the professor was widely praised. An account published in the Weekly Chronicle in 1873 described a visit by members of the State House Committee on Charitable Institutions, along with asylum trustees, including three former Knoxville mayors, John Van Gilder, Samuel Boyd, and Joseph Jaquiz, to examine the workings and progress of the asylum. Jaquiz would serve a second mayoral term five years later. The newspaper reported, After the usual introductions and exchanges of greetings, the party was conducted to the recital room and comfortably seated. The entire school made their appearance. And here we would state that a more interesting and intelligent school of any kind can hardly be found in the state. Four members of Professor Iams' class were first to make their appearance on the stage, and on large slates wrote in large words of their own dictation their appreciation for the committee's visit, while one member of the class, translated by Professor Iams, tendered a hearty welcome to the committee. Professor Iams clearly made an impact during the time he was superintendent. However, the next time he would receive similar accolades would be in December 1882, in his own obituary. For a few years, he had suffered symptoms of intermittent neuralgia of the head. But it was a jolt when, after feeling rather unwell for a few days, he fell violently ill. He died shortly after of unknown causes. The whole situation, a severe shock to trustees, students, and his family. In the professor's obituary, the Knoxville Journal also commented on his legacy. It read, He went to work with a will, and for 16 years has been a zealous and untiring worker in this cause of humanity. The institution stands today as a monument to his life work. The professor's last words, remarked to one of the school's teachers, apparently were, Remember that every single thought you impress upon the mind of every one of these children will form part of a bridge over a great gulf. Professor Iams is clearly credited with bringing the institution back to prominence after the Civil War and establishing its ongoing reputation. While grieving his death, the trustees who had originally hired him would have been saddened yet fully satisfied with their choice of superintendent. Mary Iams lived several decades longer than her husband, passing away in 1921 at the age of 74. They are both buried along with several children who died young at Old Grace Cemetery. Today, 
the grounds of the former deaf and dumb asylum are worth a visit. Now occupied by Lincoln Memorial University's Duncan School of Law, the campus unveiled a new statue of President Abraham Lincoln in 2018. The work of artist Wayne Hyde, entitled Lincoln, The Final Summation, the statue lends new character to this section of downtown. And even though President Lincoln never visited the city, the building played a vital role involving both sides of the conflict during the pivotal war of his presidency. It still plays an important role in city life today, 172 years after its construction. Surely, Professor Iams would have been pleased that the building that was once his home and office is still here too. This story was written by Jack Neely and narrated by Alex Harrelson. Sound design and editing by Pete Carty. Theme song composed by Mike Stallings. For other podcasts and stories, please join us online at knoxvillehistoryproject.org or find us on your favorite podcast hosting platform. Funding for this podcast has been provided by Friends of the Knoxville History Project and Federal Award Number 21.027, awarded to the City of Knoxville by the U.S. Department of the Treasury and the Arts and Culture Alliance. Thanks for listening to Knoxville Chronicles. Chronicles.